Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be together again as the Lord's people here at Honeyridge this morning. A special welcome to each and every one of you who are, are here. A welcome to those who are joining us online with the live stream. Uh, it's lovely to have you with us as well today. Uh, as much as it's good that we have the technology and we can uh, be in your homes if you are watching online, if you do not need to be at home for, for health or other reasons, I would really encourage you to try and make the effort to, to join us back at church. The people here will tell you at home that it's definitely far better to be here gathered with God's people than it is to be at home, and so I'd really encourage as many as possible that we start getting back to normal uh, as the life and ministry of the church uh, does return to some form of normality, but special welcome to everyone here today. I'd like to thank all of those who joined our Family Friday Bri on Friday evening. It's the first time we've done something like this, perhaps in a, in a long time, if ever, um, but we really had an incredible time of, of fellowship and uh, just yeah, enjoying catching up with each other, wonderful food and fellowship and fun uh, here on Friday evening, and so uh, for those of you who missed it, it, it really was a wonderful time of just reconnecting and also making new friends and just meeting new people who've uh, perhaps we have not known or have joined Honey Ridge uh, during this past year. And so as we do these in future, I'd really encourage you again, if you uh, didn't attend this last one, to make every effort to, to join us in future. Just to let you know, we are in holiday mode for the next two weeks. So this Sunday and next Sunday, we don't have our normal Bible land activities running during the 1030 service, but uh, we are having a children's talk today and, and uh, next Sunday in the 1030 service. And then it's great to have the children with us. So if there are some children here in the service today, uh, particularly if you kind of Older primary school, maybe grade five, six, seven, or even grade eight. Um, there are some worksheets at the back there. There's a music stand at the back with a little worksheet on, which will help you during the service uh, just to follow along uh, in the sermon notes. And so I'd encourage you, if you'd like to make use of that, uh, you certainly are welcome to just pick one of those up uh, before the sermon. And then again, just a reminder that we aren't... Uh, taking up our tithes and offerings in, in collection form uh, at the moment due to COVID restrictions. If you have come prepared, there is a box at the back just outside uh, Kate's office. You can put your tithes and offerings in there. Uh, just for those of you who have switched to EFT, and I think it is safer for all and, and definitely more convenient, just to again remind you to please make sure that your reference on your uh, EFT deposit is for either missions or tithes or the care fund. Just make sure that that's correctly allocated so that um, those who look after the church finances can, can allocate your gift uh, to the correct uh, channel. Uh, and then again, just as we've always done during this time, uh, as inconvenient as it is, particularly during singing, but please keep your masks on at all times. Let's observe social distancing. Uh, this is to honor the government and to show love for one another during this time. And to encourage you, if you can, stay after the service for tea and coffee outside. Please do that, and uh, let's continue to just reconnect one with another uh, as we gather as God's people. I just want to mention a couple of books. We've got a wonderful library now in the foyer. Uh, we always had a good library, but it, it was kind of stuck away and hidden. It's now in the foyer, so as you get a cup of tea and coffee, you can browse the library. But we also have one bookshelf, which are new books available for sale. And I just want to mention a couple of books that I think will tie in with uh, something of what we've been looking at in the parables. The parables each week have been challenging us with regards to whether or not we are 
which group are we in? Are we part of the kingdom of heaven or are we not? And, and so that might have raised some questions with regards to, are you truly saved? How do you really know that you are a believer? Uh, not just a, a Christian outwardly, but truly a child of God. So he has a wonderful book by Michael Lawrence called Conversion, uh, How God Creates a People. And it really looks at the essence of the gospel and what it truly means to be a born-again believer. And so I highly recommend that. Uh, perhaps your prayer life has, has struggled in, in recent months, and you're not sure where to start to, to get your prayer life back on track. Well, he has a wonderful book uh, called The Layman's Look at the Lord's Prayer by Philip Keller. He's also done a book on, the, on, on Psalm 23. He was a shepherd uh, at one point in his life um, and, and then did a wonderful book on the Lord's Prayer, uh, on, on Psalm 23 and now on, on the Lord's Prayer. And this will just be a wonderful catalyst for you in terms of reconnecting with the way the Lord taught his disciples how to pray. Uh, as we think about regathering and what it really means to be the people of God, uh, the compelling community uh, by Mark Diva and Jamie Dunlop uh, really looks at, at how the community of God's people makes the gospel attractive. Um, we've all experienced what it's like to kind of do church, if we can call it that, in our homes over the past year. And we know that something is fundamentally missing, and it's this concept of community, of being together as God's people. There's a great resource. Um, again, many of us know the theory of the gospel, but here Matt Chandler in the explicit gospel, uh, it says at the back, this book is for the overchurched and the unchurched. And what he means by that is that even those of us who've grown up in church and know and talk about the gospel, we really haven't perhaps grasped what it really means for the gospel to change our lives. And so in the explicit gospel, that's what Matt Chander does. He tries to really unpack how the gospel transforms uh, all of our lives. And then the last book that I'd like to mention is just this one, Gentle and Lowly, uh, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. As we are called to engage with those around us in our community, to love them as Christ loved us, uh, we need to know Christ's heart towards sinners and sufferers. And this is a wonderful resource that gives you an insight into the heart of Christ which we as his people are meant to emulate. So there's just five books, but there are many others uh, on the bookshelf, and uh, you're welcome to browse the library or the, the new books, and trust that those will be a great help to you and that you might then pass them on to others to be a, a blessing to them as well. Thanks, Grant. Well, good morning. An extension of the welcome from, um, from us up here. Um, so today we're going to start off with worship service by looking at Psalm 66, which is a, an encourager with a powerful reminder of the greatness and worthiness of God. Verses 1 to 4, follow with me as it's on the screen. Let the whole earth shout joyfully to God. Sing about the glory of His name. Make His praise glorious. Say to God, how awe-inspiring are your works. Your enemies will cringe before you because of your great strength. The whole earth will worship you and sing praise to you. They will sing praise to your name. The whole earth will worship him. The whole earth will sing praise to him. Rejoice, the Lord is king. Stand with us and sing.
So our next reading is one from Hebrews and is an exhortation or a warning um, to godliness. If you read with me. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. So the writer in the Hebrews and in this section first stipulates our position in Christ. To have boldness of confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus and the priesthood of Jesus. He then encourages us as brothers and sisters, or the brethren, and himself, including himself when he says us, the practical application of drawing near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean and an evil conscience, sorry, and clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed in pure water. The writer here addresses the heart, a true heart, or some versions would say, a sincere heart. I believe that the writer is pointing us to the fact that Christianity is not just a matter of outward conformity to a moral standard, but also a matter of loving from our heart. A heart that has been transformed by his grace, having faith resting in the promises of God and in the assurance found in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our hope and our blessed assurance. Stand with us as we continue. This is my story. This 
be seated. Just uh, one of the announcements that I forgot to make is that on uh, Saturday the 8th of May, we are having our first new members orientation uh, class in, in over a year, and uh, there was a list at the info desk for a while, and we have enough people to, to do that on the 8th. If you would still like to know more about what it means to become a member here at Honeyridge, understand uh, what we believe the scriptures teach regarding the church and membership of the church, then please just phone the church office in the course of the week and let them know that you're interested to, to join us for that. There's no obligation uh, after that, but um, it is part of the process if you would like to become a member. And so that's about joining Honeyridge, but then there are times when it's very sad when we have to say goodbye to people who are leaving Honeyridge, and I'm going to ask Dave and Pam Ruger if they would just come to the front. I did see them. There we go. Um, if they won't just join me here. Um, got, to, got to weave your way through the maze uh, to get to the front. Right there. Yeah, so... Dave and Pam, I think, have been part of Honey Ridge for 28, 29, 29 years. Um, this has been their spiritual home. I think your kids have all been born and brought up and left Honey Ridge and moved on. And so this truly has been not only your spiritual home, but your, your family uh, in the true sense of the, the kingdom of God, a family that lasts into all eternity. But uh, Dave and, and Pam have decided to, to leave uh, the beauty of Joburg um, for the arid climate of Neisner, um, and, and so we'll be uh, moving down there in the course of the next week or two, um, and uh, we'll be, I think I've been involved when you are down there with the Baptist Church, which is pastored by Malcolm Cunningham, who used to be a member here at Honeyridge, so there is a, a connection um, back there, down there, but we just want to commend you to the Lord this morning. Um, Thank you for your contribution to the life and ministry of the church over all these years as you've gone through different seasons of life. I tried to ask, uh, what have Dave and Pam been involved in over the years at Honey Ridge? And the answer was kind of everything. Um, as you've gone through different seasons of life, you've just been involved in the, in the ministry of the church, and, and that's, the body of Christ is richer for that. And so we pray that as you leave here uh, and you'll leave a void in, in, in the ministries that you have been involved in, so we pray that you'll fill uh, gaps uh, that the Lord has prepared for you uh, down in Neisner and that you would uh, yeah, think of us, pray for us, and we will do the same for you. And uh, you're always welcome when you come back to, to visit us. So this is just a letter uh, from us as elders and from the church just commending you to the Lord um, and assuring you of God's grace. And let's just pray and commit, commit you to the Lord as you move on. Our loving Heavenly Father, we, we want to come before you at, at times like this and acknowledge that you are a God who not only gives life to all and you give spiritual life and you bring us into the context of the church, but at seasons you also choose to take people away from the church uh, to other parts of your kingdom. Uh, we'll be reminded in your word today that uh, part of our responsibility is to be witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ, to be your ambassadors uh, and we pray that as Dave and Pam leave us here at Honey Ridge and will leave a void here in the context of the body here uh, in terms of all that they have been part of and the friendships and the relationships over so many years, 
Uh, we pray that you would go before them and that they would become your witnesses and your ambassadors down in Neisner. We thank you for the work of Christ down there as well, that they can join the body there and uh, belong and be a great blessing to the church there, and that the church there would be a great encouragement to them as they settle down in Neisner. Um, but Lord, we pray for them as a, as a couple. Uh, we pray that you would go before them in their move. We thank you for providing for them in terms of the sale of their home. And as the practicalities of the next week or two unfold with the actual move down to Neisner, we do pray uh, that in everything you would go before them. Uh, we thank you that you are a God who leads us uh, not only in the big things in life, but in the details as well. And so as they make this major move, uh, we pray that you would not only go before them uh, in this next season of life, but also in the very details of that which needs to unfold. We thank you for them. We thank you that the body of Christ here at Honeyridge has been greatly enriched and built up uh, by them and their children and their family growing up in the context of this church. Uh, we thank you that we've been blessed by them, and uh, we pray that the blessing that they have received in being part of Honeyridge would be a blessing that they would now use to sow uh, the ongoing seeds of your grace and your goodness into the lives of other people. And so we thank you, Lord, that in these times of, of departure, as sad as it is that we take leave of them here from Honeyridge, we pray for your special blessing to be upon them, uh, and that this next season of their lives would be one of great fruitfulness in their own personal walk with you, uh, and in their involvement in the body of Christ down in the Cape. And so we thank you that we can commit them to you and to your care and ask for your very special blessing to be upon them. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. <clears throat> Let's uh, continue in prayer together as we come together and pray. Our loving and heavenly Father, hear our songs of worship Hear our hearts join together as we read of your great love and your grace. See the church joining together in unity for you and through your son Jesus. And may this be pleasing to you as we come bowed down before you. Father, help us to share what you have given to us. Not so that we can please one another, but rather that we would please you who examines our hearts. Help our every thought and motive to be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. Help us to be obedient to you, Lord, from the heart. Help us as a church to grow ever more in obedience, in love and in faithfulness, resting in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ and in him alone. We praise your name, Lord, for those who have served and continue to serve among us, for their faithfulness and for their involvement in the work of the church and in their serving here. We think of the Rugers and in particular this morning, their, commit, their continued involvement um, over the many years. We think of the elders and deacons and their continued commitments to lead and to serve your people here at Honeyridge and the many others that are involved in the various ministries within the church. We thank you, Lord, for how you have sustained them, and we pray that you would continue to do so. So, Father, would you lead Clinton in a little while as he opens your word to us today, and would you help us to hear 
and see the goodness of your grace through the word and through the teaching of this next parable. So prepare our hearts, Lord, we pray. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing one more song um, before we come to the sermon. Um, so stand with us and join.
Could I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13? There it is up on the, uh, the screen, the passage that we're going to be reading together this morning. Matthew chapter 13, uh, from verse 47 to 50. Uh, it's just a, a short portion of God's word, um, but much to, much to learn from as we come to God's word this morning. So I'm reading to you from Matthew chapter 13, verse 47, from the English Standard Version. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, this is God's word, and Grant has already prayed that God would add his blessing to it this morning. So we come this morning to our last uh, parable in this section on the growth of the kingdom of God, or the growth of the kingdom of heaven. And it's a parable which may seem at at face value to be very similar to one that we looked at a couple weeks ago when we considered the parable of the wheat and the counterfeit, or the wheat and the, the weeds. But this is a separate parable which Jesus told, as with all the parables, to teach us something new, some spiritual truth that was previously hidden. And so we will do well to keep our Bibles open. It may be a very familiar parable to you, uh, one that I still remember coloring in a coloring in picture from Sunday school days uh, of this dragnet and all the fish being brought uh, onto the shore. But let's not let the familiarity with such a, a simple and short parable keep us away from really coming with open hearts to, to hear what God has to say to us this morning. The previous, uh, the, the previous three parables that we've looked at in this section have all explained the growth of the kingdom, uh, you will hopefully recall, in terms of organic growth. Uh, we've seen the kingdom of heaven is like wheat that's growing in a field, but then we saw that the devil came and he planted weeds, his agents, uh, among the weeds in order to, to try and destroy the crop so that it would not bear fruit. Then we considered the parable of the seed growing, how the farmer sows the seed and then he goes to bed at night and he doesn't know how, but God is the one who causes the plants to grow. Uh, And then last week we learned from the parable of the mustard seed uh, that the kingdom of God, it starts off small, Uh, it starts off uh, as a tiny seed, but then over time by God's growing, it turns into this magnificent kingdom that will last into all eternity. But now in this parable, Jesus changes from the analogy of growing uh, to one of catching, and particularly that of catching fish. And we must remember that Jesus in the parables used 
everyday common ideas in his parables, concepts which would have been familiar with and which would have resonated with his listeners in order to, to have the most impact in bringing across the spiritual message that Jesus was trying to convey. And, and so as we look at this story, we see that Jesus turns here to the everyday practice of commercial fishing. Now, I'm sure there may have been some recreational fishermen in those days. You know, those are the guys who stand for hours on end looking at the end of a stick. Um, But that's not the fishing that we're talking about. That's not what took place here at the Sea of Galilee. What we're considering here this morning is mostly commercial fishing. Many men, fishing was their occupation. This was their livelihood. It was a very big part of their lives. And we know from early accounts in the Gospels when Jesus called his disciples that a number of them were just such commercial fishermen. They were part of a a bigger family business of fishermen, and and this was certainly not an easy life. Fishermen were hardened, rough characters. It, It often required them to go out all night to weather severe storms and then to come back onto shore the next morning to sort the fish, to get them off to market, then to mend their nets, which got damaged during the the previous night, and then to start the whole process all over again. And so Jesus starts this parable, and he says to his disciples something new. And yet it's something that should have been familiar to them. He says that the kingdom of heaven is like a net that is thrown into the sea, and it gathered every kind of fish. Now this should have sounded familiar to his disciples, because when Jesus called Peter and his brother Andrew, they were busy fishing at the time. They were busy doing exactly what Jesus is describing here, and Jesus called them and he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So Jesus had already hinted right at the very beginning of his earthly ministry as he called his disciples what their purpose was going to be if they followed him, and it was to catch people for the kingdom of heaven. Now, in this parable, which still seems to be spoken in the context mainly of the disciples, Jesus tells them more about this mission which he had called them to, and then which through the extension of the Great Commission at the end of his earthly ministry extends to you and I today as those who have become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look then in the first place this morning at the kingdom catching. Um, Let's just jump over that. There we go. Okay. The kingdom catching in verse 47. Now, fishing in, in those days was, was done by means of a dragnet. All right, a dragnet, which usually meant that two boats would, would go out into the Sea of Galilee and they would span a, a long length of netting uh, in the water between the two boats. There were usually floats along the, the top edge of the net, uh, weights along the bottom edge of the net, and then the two boats would come back to shore and with, with ropes, people on shore would then pull the nets um, towards the shore. And this, this net would form like a large funnel uh, and it would catch all the fish Uh, that it could into this net. And so when we think of this kind of fishing, we we must not be be tempted to fall into the pattern of of thinking about a guy who's standing on a solitary river bank, uh, casting his fly fishing rod into the water, hoping to take one home. 
No, this is large-scale commercial fishing to get out of the water uh, as much as possible. And what we are told is that this dragnet approach to fishing gathered into the net every kind of fish. In a sense, we could say that it was a kind of a broad-based approach to fishing. You throw the net out wide, you drag it long and deep, and you see what you get. Now, Jesus is telling us here that the kingdom of God will grow by catching people from the world into this dragnet of the church. The church is the visible people of God here on earth, and people are added to the church through this process of spiritual fishing. And so I want us to take a a little bit of a detour this morning to just spend a few minutes thinking about how we do this work of fishing for men, catching souls. What does it look like? And then in the next point, we're going to consider from the parable exactly what gets caught. But let's consider the various ways in which the Bible teaches us then to go and do this fishing for men. And the first way we do that is through our personal witness. Let's click twice there. Let's just go back through our personal witness and our interaction with people. It's clear that throughout the Bible, people come to know Jesus Christ mainly through people through other people. God has chosen that we are the means, the primary means to build his kingdom. We see that Jesus calls us in in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 and 14, to be salt and light, and that we are to live our lives before the people of the world in such a way that they will see our good works, that they will take notice that we are different and thereby will glorify God. But more specifically in the book of Acts, We see Jesus preparing his disciples for this purpose. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We know that that could never have been fulfilled by just that group of 12. It's by extension fulfilled as those disciples made disciples who make disciples. And somewhere along the line, some disciple of Jesus Christ led you to Christ and was part of the process of making you into a disciple. We are called by Peter in 1 Peter 3 verse 15. Every Christian is told to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ. How many of you, if someone came up to you at school or at work and said, I want to know more about being a Christian, can you explain to me what you believe? That you say, well, let me just phone my pastor and set up an appointment with him. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you need to give a reason for the hope that you have in Christ. Listen to how Paul put this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. He says, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself And here it is, and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them, and entrusted to us, the church, this message of reconciliation. Therefore, says Paul, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And so then he does exactly what he's saying. We implore you, therefore, on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. There's a saying which I think is very true, and it goes like this. You are the only Bible 
that most people will ever read. Isn't that so especially true in, in this ever-increasing secular humanistic society where very few people these days come to church anymore because it's the right thing to do, because your parents expected it of you? More and more today we are finding people growing up who know nothing about the contents of this book given to us by God. Their only access to the things of God is you. The question then is, how much of the truth of God's word and his way of salvation is being revealed to them through you? If you are the, the only Bible that most unbelievers will ever read, how much Bible are they getting to see? How much Bible evidence is seen in your life or explained through your words and your personal witness? So it's clear from Scripture that, that we are all called to obviously firstly know and believe for sure uh, what we know and understand about Christ and the way of salvation. But then at a bare minimum, you and I should each as Christians be able to explain the essential truths of the gospel to others who may ask. And then, of course, our lifestyles and our conduct and our marriages and our families and our speech and our actions, these things then become the springboard which will give our words of personal witness about Christ uh, the credibility and the impact that it should have. People will often say to us as Christians, practice what you preach. And we understand what they mean. They're calling us to be accountable in our lives in accordance with what we say. But really, the, the statement should be the other way around. Preach what you practice. Be a witness of who you are in Christ. If you are truly living out your relationship with Jesus, the opportunities to witness for Him will abound. So if you say to me, look, in the last year, I haven't had a single opportunity, or the last two years, maybe the last year is a bit rough being in lockdown, um, but, but generally speaking, in the last year or two, I haven't had many opportunities to witness for Jesus. The question I would ask you is, is your life reflecting a life of a follower of Jesus? Is your life this springboard? Are people seeing your good works, seeing your, your, your attitude to life as being so fundamentally different to theirs that they inquire after uh, your hope that you have? So that's the first point, through our personal witness. But secondly, we fish for men through the corporate witness of the church. It's clear from Scripture that it is through the regular preaching ministry in the context of the church like we are doing today that people will hear the gospel of Christ and be saved. Listen to Romans 10, how Paul explains this. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a wonderful truth that gives us boldness as we go out there. But then he says, how will they call on him, on Christ, in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him if they've never heard? And how are they to hear unless someone preaches? And I don't think we must limit preaching to what we're doing now on a Sunday morning only. Of course, it includes that. But unless someone proclaims the truth of the gospel to them. And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through, again, the words of Christ. 
So throughout the history of the church, the primary means of conversion, generally speaking, was through the the preaching and the teaching ministry of the church. As men and women and boys and girls are invited to church, are invited to the various small groups and youth ministries and various activities of the church, and they come under the preaching and the teaching of the gospel. But we saw this a few weeks ago, uh, that the modern view of preaching and, and Bible study is that, well, this is all old-fashioned. Uh, this is boring, it's irrelevant, and apparently powerless to save. And, and so we are told uh, by those who are kind of the, the church growth gurus that we are to drop preaching or to minimize preaching and Bible study, and we are to switch to all kinds of things which entertain in order to draw in the crowds. The problem is that entertainment never saved a single soul. Not one. It's like fishing with a dragnet full of holes. It looks like there are a lot of fish. There's a lot of activity in the context of the net while you're busy dragging it. But when you pull it to shore, there are no fish inside. They've all escaped. Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians that it is this, what we're doing here today, the formal gathering of the church. It's in our orderliness. It's in our singing the word and praying the word. It's in the clear preaching and explanation of the scriptures. It's in the celebrating of of baptism and, and the Lord's Supper, which, by the way, we're going to be celebrating in person for the first time in a long time next Sunday morning. Uh, so please come prepared for that. But it's in those things that, that the unbeliever who comes into our midst will be struck by the presence of God. They will be brought under the conviction of their sin, and they will be led by the Holy Spirit to repentance and faith. Then thirdly, we fish for men through the missionary activities of the church, and really I don't want to draw too much distinction between point C and point A and B. It really flows out of the first two as those individuals in the context of the local church are then set apart to go out from the church to a specific place away from the church to go and be witnesses for Jesus. But I want you to see that the work of a missionary is simply to do in a foreign context that which the individuals and the local church should be doing right here. In other words, being a witness for Jesus Christ through their lives, at work, and in the context of their community, and preaching the gospel as they have every opportunity. I think we have a very distorted view, particularly as Baptists, towards missions. Baptists have pioneered world missions, and I think as good as that has been, it's sometimes led to a complacency where we can say, well, that's not my job. We've paid missionaries to go and do it. No, a missionary is simply someone who really finds the context of the local church so frustrating because there's so many other people sharing the gospel. They need to get out there where no one has heard. Again, we see this as the biblical pattern in the New Testament. The book of Acts, men like Paul and Barnabas, they are sent out by the church to go and preach the gospel in places where it had not yet reached But their sending was based on the fact that Paul and Barnabas were seen to be faithful evangelists in the context of the local church. They were so on fire for the Lord that they could not be contained and were sent out. Is that our attitude towards missions 
and raising up missionaries uh, in our midst. Maybe we should ask, why has it been such a long time since Honeyridge has sent out missionaries? Maybe it's because we're not doing part A and part B in the context of the local church. And then fourthly, we see that we fish for men through various other Christian uh, organizations. And, and by this I mean things like schools and Christian university campus ministries. There are social care ministries like orphanages or pregnancy crisis centers. There are biblical counseling centers, Christian gap year programs, prison ministries, Christian rehab, and the list goes on. There are many excellent parachurch organizations doing a wonderful work in reaching people with their dragnets so that they can be drawn into the church as the people of God. And so kingdom catching is, is about pursuing people in the world out there in order to bring them into the kingdom. And as they join and become part of the local church, they become part of the body of Christ locally and globally. So I hope you can see from those four points that every single believer has a role to play in becoming fishers of men. We all need to play our part in, in going out to catch souls for the kingdom, individually, in the sphere of people that God has brought into your circle. You are the most effective person to reach the people in your circle than anyone else. You can't import an evangelist or import a youth pastor or import anyone else into your context and expect that they're going to do a better job at sharing the gospel with those that you have a relationship with. It's your job. So individually, but as a church community, we are called to be this witness for Jesus Christ and then further afield through missions and then in whatever other host of many varied organizations and activities and ministries that we can get involved in. But then the second main thing which, which this parable teaches us uh, is about the kingdom composition. We've seen the kingdom catching, and now we see the kingdom composition in verse 47 and 48. Let's just read those again. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So we see two things here about the, the kingdom composition or the makeup of those who are part of the kingdom of God. And the first thing is, is a positive thing. The dragnet, which was put out to, to catch the fish, we are told in verse 47, gathered fish of every kind. Now this was something new to Jesus' hearers, which they would not have previously understood. They should have understood it. But they didn't, namely that the kingdom of heaven is not just made up of Jews, but it includes people of every tribe and tongue and nation and, and ethnic group and race and language come to Jesus for salvation. God had made it abundantly clear through the Old Testament that he had chosen Israel as his special people in order that through them salvation and blessing might be passed to all the nations. But they had lost sight of this. And so by the time of the New Testament, by the time of Jesus, most Jews believed that salvation was only for them. 
And so Jesus here has to remind them that the net of the gospel, the net of God's redemption and salvation catches people of every kind, every race and color and language and station in life. This truth speaks so wonderfully to the inclusivity of the gospel. Christianity is the most inclusive religion in all the world because no one is excluded if you will come to Christ. Salvation of God is for all people. We would do well to take note of this, I think particularly in our South African context. Uh, We are 25 plus years uh, into our democracy, and yet, sadly, the way many people still think and act is in according to some kind of spiritual apartheid. This happens on on both sides of the the color and the language divide where where each group thinks of itself as the spiritual or the social or the cultural or the political or the traditional elite and does not recognize the mixed nature of the church of Jesus Christ to include all under one banner, one family, which is the family of God himself himself. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to 22 is a wonderful exposition of that reality. But in Galatians 3, verse 27, Paul says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And the language he was using there was to take racial Social and gender divides, and he says they are all gone in Christ. We are one body, one family in Christ Jesus. So may the Lord help us in applying then this principle of all kinds of fish in our thinking as Christians, in our thinking as Honey Ridge, the way that we go out and interact with our workers or our employers or the council or the municipality or political government officials. God sees no distinction. We are all people, human beings made in his image, and this gospel net must be thrown wide, not to draw some fish into one pond and another fish into another pond and a third group of fish into a third pond, but to bring all the different kinds of fish into one place, which is the church, where we represent this new humanity in Christ. But the second thing we see about the composition of the kingdom is not so positive. It's actually very negative. And that is that this net of the gospel gathers into the church not only fish of every different kind, but some of the fish which are caught are bad. Now, bad fish in the context of commercial fishing would have been any fish which could not be sold for food, which could not serve the purpose for which it was caught. And so it would be fish which were either sick or badly injured or perhaps a species which had lots of bones and so couldn't be eaten or might even be poisonous. And so we see that that when this net is finally brought to shore, there is a separation which takes place. Two piles, two containers. There's the good fish and then there's the bad fish. The good are sorted and they go off to the market and look at what happens to the bad. They are simply destroyed. They're thrown away. So what is Jesus teaching us here with with this aspect of the parable? I think it's similar to what we learned a few weeks back with the parable of the wheat and the weeds. 
And that is that there will be those in the context of the local church who will turn out to be bad fish, spiritually and morally corrupt, and who may even prove to be poisonous. And as we saw last time with the wheat and the weeds growing together, God didn't stop the process of the fishing here and say, oh, as the net was being dragged, I see there's a, there's a bad fish. Stop the process. Let's get the bad fish out and then carry on. No, that would hold back the whole fishing process. And so the net of the kingdom continues to move forward. It continues to be pulled towards the shore of eternity, and it's gathering all the good fish which God has intended. Not one good fish will be missing from that net, but along with it will come the inevitable bad fish, which will finally be separated out on the shore. And while this truth might concern us, we should be encouraged here to realize that God is, is fully aware of the fact that there are going to be people in the context of the local church who may in time prove to be bad fish. The encouragement here is that this doesn't take God by surprise. He's, he's aware of this. And as we saw previously, that as the devil strategically places those weeds in the midst of the wheat to choke and, and cause destruction... So God, we saw, uses those weed plants. He uses the bad fish to achieve his good purposes among his children, even though this is sometimes difficult and painful, and we called it God's uncomfortable grace. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We, we find ourselves here in, in Paul's letter to the Philippian church. He's writing to them from prison. He's been arrested for his faith. He's been arrested for his being a witness of the gospel, for preaching the gospel, and he's locked up in a Roman prison. From Satan's perspective, a great victory had been won. The great missionary Paul was off the streets. His work had been halted. The churches in which he had been involved were without an apostle, without leaders. But let's see what Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial God and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice." See that Paul refers to both the good and the bad fish. And through them, God is causing much good to come forth. The weeds, the bad fish, are not just those who had Paul thrown into prison, but actually those in the context of churches who were trying for selfish reasons to make Paul's time in prison worse. But yet they were preaching the gospel. And in reality, the, the gospel continued to be proclaimed. The church continued to be strengthened. Those who witnessed Paul's imprisonment became bold and spoke out. 
And on top of that, he says the whole Roman guard and the rest of the prisoners were getting the opportunity to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says the gospel is advancing as a result of bad fish. There will be people in our lives, yes, even in the church, who for years might appear to be good fish. And yet in the end, they prove to be weeds. They prove to be bad fish. And sometimes even after it is revealed who they are, they will to continue to, to grow side by side as we saw with the, feet, uh, the, the weeds. They will continue to be dragged along in the net of the church. Some of these bad fish, by God's incredible grace, will become good fish. Praise God for that. Just like each of you and I who are here today, we were bad fish at one point in our lives. But there will be some who jump out of the net and swim away, and there will be others who hang around in the net, remaining bad fish until the net is finally dragged ashore, and then they will be separated out. But it's clear in God's design that the church should strive to be as pure and blameless as possible in this life. This is not negating that, but the reality is that the devil will plant weeds in order to disrupt the church, other bad fish will be caught up in the, in the ministry of the church, pretending to be good and healthy fish, but we are told that all will be exposed in that final sorting uh, on the shore of the judgment day. And so that really leads us on then just to our final point this morning, which is the, the kingdom culmination in verse 49 and 50. Let's read those verses. Just turn back to Matthew 13, uh, verse 49 to 50. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the kingdom of God may be a mixed bag in this life. But what these verses tell us is that all of history is heading toward a goal a culmination of, of all God's plans and, and activities of salvation. And that final day is this judgment of all the living and the dead. And just like the weeds grew alongside the wheat until the very end, until the harvest day, so too now the bad fish are gathered along in the net with the good fish until the day of this final sorting, this final dividing arrives. And then, says Jesus, the angels will come and separate the evil people from the righteous. And those who are unrighteous will be thrown into the fiery furnace, again reminding us that hell will be a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. So once again, we see that the parable of Jesus divides all of us into one of two groups. And we we feel very uncomfortable with this because there are no shades of gray here. There's no room to maneuver. At the end of the age, when, when the net is brought onto the shore, onto the sorting table of the final judgment, there will only be two groups, the evil and the righteous. And we know from the rest of Scripture that God's standard for righteousness is one of absolute perfection. Please note that there is no container for the really nice evil person. There's no container for he's such a good guy evil person. Or for the so-called innocent person who lives in the jungles of Timbuktu. Or the mostly good religious person. No, there's only two options. Sinner or saint. Evil or righteous. 
and all of history is heading towards that day, and all of eternity begins on that day. So which are you this morning? Are you evil or righteous? Are you guilty or forgiven? There's no other choice today, and there will be no other choice on that terrible day. Now, if our eternal destiny on that day of the judgment shore was left up to us, every one of us here today would be identified as bad fish, and we would be deserving to be thrown into that fiery furnace for all eternity, because every one of us is a sinner, and not one of us is righteous on our own. No one is good, not even one, says Paul in Romans. But he goes on in Romans 3.21, but now, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, God's righteousness credited to us. He says there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Paul saying all are bad fish. But we are justified as a, as a gift by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God wants us to know the righteous who will be gathered into heaven one day are not those who made it there on their own. In other words, those who lived a, a certain level of morality and religiosity in this life. No, those who are in the righteous container on that day are those who have been declared righteous because of Jesus. They are those evil, sinful, bad fish who repented of their sin along the way, turned to Jesus and have been clothed in his righteousness, have received his forgiveness and justification, and have been transformed by God's supernatural power into good fish. And so this should shift our focus from ourselves. I know that there's been a number of you who've spoken to me in the last couple of weeks about an inner searching, an inner wrestling of, of where you stand before God. And, and the devil wants you to look inward. He wants you to compare yourself with either the good fish around you and say you're not good enough, or to compare yourself with the really bad fish around you and say I'm glad I'm not that bad. But what the gospel calls us to do is to look away from ourselves and to look to Christ. He is the perfect righteous lamb of God who suffered the separation of God's judgment in our place. Jesus died the death of the bad fish. He took upon himself the fiery furnace of God's wrath in our place so that we can be set free, so that we can stand with confidence on that day in the presence of God, clothed in a righteousness which is not our own, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and know that we will be fully accepted. With such a terrible fate then, awaiting all those who remain in, in sin and in reliance on their own goodness, how should this good news of salvation, this good news of, of the righteousness of Christ, how should that affect us who've been delivered from that awful day of judgment because of the life and death of Jesus? Well, Paul tells us in Philippians 3, he says, Whatever gain I had, I count now as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count, listen to the statement, everything as loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. How much do you count everything in your life as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ your Lord? Notice he's not saying that there aren't things in this life that are not valuable and dear and precious and good. But he says, in comparison to getting Christ, they are nothing to me. How much do we know the power of his resurrection in our life as we suffer trials for the sake of Jesus? You see, it's to the degree that you grasp the surpassing worth of Jesus. He has a connection to the the pearl of great price parable, that one where we looked at the treasure hidden in the ground. It's only when we grasp the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ as our Lord that we will be eager then, as with anything else that we value in this life, to share this treasure of the gospel with those around us. So may God help us as we go about this work of kingdom catching, to keep our eyes fixed on Him, to set our hearts on on Him and then to be his ambassadors as we appeal to the world around us, be reconciled to God. Let's close in a word of prayer. Again, Lord God, we want to come before you this morning in humble dependence to recognize that we were those bad fish who, by your grace, got caught up in the net of the church, the net of Christianity through a a mother that never stopped praying for us or a a friend that kept on talking to us about the Lord Jesus Christ, that person who invited us to youth group or or church or to join a, a picnic. And through that, we were caught up in the net of the church. And for a season, we were bad fish inside the net until that one day when we heard the gospel explained either through the preaching of the word or through the reading of scripture or through the the testimony of of another believer. And you brought us to that place of saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us never ever to think that somehow we are the good fish because of anything we have done. It is only because of your grace. And so Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for so often looking around us at perhaps the bad fish out there in the world and thinking that they don't need to be brought in Or perhaps even worse, to look at those who within the context of the church are not yet true children of God and we we treat them with contempt and judgment. Oh, forgive us, Lord, for that we pray. Give us your heart for the lost. Help us to realize that there is a day coming and, and it's coming soon when the net will be pulled ashore. And then it's not an earthly judgment that will count. It is, it is the angels who will come, who will see into our hearts, who will separate the good from the bad. Oh Lord, may we stop playing games with you. May we stop playing games with the other good fish in the net. May we all come 
run to you if we have not found salvation in Jesus Christ, that we would do so today. And then, Lord, that we would be eager, good fish, eager to make you known to everyone, both inside and outside the church, that that will hasten the day of your return uh, when we will meet you face to face. We thank you for your love, Lord Jesus. We thank you that you suffered this fiery furnace in our place so that we would not be consumed on that day but would be ushered into your presence. We owe everything to you. Help us to grasp this afresh today and may it be evident in our love for the lost around us. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to end the service as we usually do with the song, so stand and join us.
to share the benediction from the end of Romans chapter 16, verses 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my great gospel and the proclamation about Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept silent for long ages, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures, according to the command of the eternal God to advance the obedience of faith among all Gentiles, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory forever. Amen.